John chapter 6 this evening, if you would please. I do want to say thank you, Pastor John, for asking me to be a uh, to minister tonight. I appreciate that very, very much. As uh, he asked me, and I uh, just told him just uh, in a couple of sentences what God has just been kind of teaching me through. Um, I think I'm, I believe this is exactly what the Lord would have us to go through. Um, I know I said that I explained in a nutshell in just a couple of sentences what the uh, uh, Lord's been working on my heart. I'm going to use just a few more than just a couple of sentences, though, tonight. Amen. Um, but uh, I look forward to this evening. Honestly, I don't have any note, uh, excuse me, I don't have any points. I just am going to read through a portion of Scripture tonight. And I just want you to just journey through a portion of Scripture tonight that uh, God's been working on my heart about, and it's been a help to me. Honestly, God has put some some pieces of the puzzle together in my heart. Um, Yea, just even in my own life, about how God has shaped my own life over the last uh, 18 months or so. And uh, God has just put some things together uh, in a special way. And I just want to be a help to you tonight. And that's my heart and that's my goal. Father, I thank you once again for this evening. Thank you so much for the privilege we have to look at your word. God, I do not take it lightly to be able to open up your word and preach your word. God, you know I'm prepared. God, you know my heart. And God, I want to be a help. God, I want to simply relay some thoughts, some truths in which you've taught my heart. God, may they truly help us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it was about... uh, Four or five years ago now, my oldest son, David, and I had the privilege of coming back and uh, was preaching in some conferences, missions conferences and such. And it got time for us to make that journey back to England. And I remember us getting on a connecting flight and us finally getting that last leg or that last journey over to England. And we were settling for an overnight red-eye flight. That's what most flights are from the States to England, and uh, we were settling in for the night, and uh, I was fully anticipating and uh, hoping to get a little bit of sleep uh, on the red-eye flights. Those are always hard uh, at times, but I was trying to and was planning on it. And I started honestly to doze a little bit, and my wife can attest to this, that um, when I go to sleep, I'm asleep. I don't know about you guys, but some of you might be light sleepers, but bless God, when my eyes close, a train could run through our house, and I would not know until the next morning. And uh, it's a gift, amen? And uh, I'm out. It's gone. Lights out. I'm done. Well, suddenly, I was awoken by the feeling, and if you've ever done any parachuting or any of those free-fall type things, bungee cord dropping, that feeling in the pit of your stomach when suddenly you're falling. And that's what I was woken to. As suddenly we had hit some very uh, stormy weather over the Atlantic Ocean, and we had gone through some portions and some air pockets that honestly our jet fell, I don't know how many hundreds of feet, but suddenly the uh, buckle your seatbelt light came on, Uh, the stewardesses were all scrambling for their seats, and... You almost had a moment. Is this it? Is this going to be gone? You know, I, I love planes, but I don't want to die in one. Uh, but uh, 
I thought, is this going to be the final call? And it was very stormy. We uh, ended up redirecting our flight a little bit and uh, to try to avoid some of the turbulence. But I remember going into that storm and suddenly thinking everything was going to be fine, just smooth sailing all night and being awoken by a storm, by a circumstance in which I didn't think I would encounter. You know, storms are a part of life. Storms come and storms go. But when the storms are here, is there a way that I can remain at peace? Is there a way that I can remain at calm? And maybe is it even possible to have joy in the midst of those storms? How can we navigate such a storm? How could we navigate a storm truly that would help us to look at the perspective of it in such a way that there could be joy, deep-rooted joy, in the midst of that storm? I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to say it several times. And I want us to repeat it together on this last time. Let me tell you the statement here. I want this to be resonating. Jesus is Lord of the storm. And he is doing something marvelous in the middle of my storm. Let me say it again. Jesus is is Lord of the storm. And he is doing something marvelous in the middle of my storm. Would you say it with me, please? Jesus is Lord of the storm. And he is doing something marvelous in the middle of my storm. You may have just said that and don't believe a word of it. You may have said it and you don't even understand what that statement means. May God's word help us tonight. John chapter 6. Look at verse number 15, please. When Jesus, therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. He departed alone into a mountain, himself alone. Jesus here, we find in our text, is seeking some spiritual solitude. Some spiritual solitude that would give clarity, perspective. This is before the storm even begins, before the storm even enters the picture. Jesus Christ is finding solitude. You see, in context of John chapter 6, verse number 15, we find Jesus ministering all day long. We find that he had been ministering to 5,000 men, the Bible says. Some commentators state that if you include women and children, that could be up to 25,000 people. We don't know the exact number, but we know there are 5,000 men there. It's a lot of people. And the Bible tells us that after ministering all day, these people truly were hungered. And we know the story of how Jesus took a lad's lunch with five loaves and two fishes. And the Bible tells us that he fed every single one of them till they couldn't eat another bite. With just five loaves and two fishes. That's an incredible thing. They were enthralled with this. 
the multitude was amazed at how Jesus could literally materialize food. And they wanted him to be king. And they were going to do so forcefully, the Bible says. You see, the Bible begins in, Gen- or, excuse me, in John chapter 6, in which Jesus is trying to find, once again, that solitude, that time away of rest with he and his disciples. But yea, the multitude gathered before they could find that solitude, before they could find that getaway. And they were thrust into a ministry of service, yea, that entire day. And Jesus here, as he is ministering to the heart of the first century need. Think about it here. In the first century, their life really consisted and majored on food. That was the main thing, survival. It was gathering, it was preparing, it was making sure you have enough for your family, and this was their sustenance, and this was the main thrust of life, was just making sure that they had the, uh, uh, the food and the materials, yea, to be able to survive throughout the days. And here Jesus materializes food from practically nothing. And these people see a way to exploit Jesus. A way to use Jesus for their own political purposes. Hey, this man can make what we desire and what we truly spend much of our time in. Let's make him king. If he can do this today, we can use him to make make our food tomorrow. And if we don't have to worry about our food tomorrow, what can we do? If he can be the one in which we can pull and we can force him into, yea, being that one that we can manipulate to meet our own agendas, that's exactly what we're going to do. How often do we do very the same thing? You see, these people had a very much of a short-sighted view of life. Just the next meal, just getting through, meeting the basic needs of their life. And so often we try to do that exact same thing. We try to pull Jesus into our own circumstances, into our own way of life, and try to manipulate and exploit who God is. Try to put him in some type of a box in which we say he's got to be confined to. But my friends, God is bigger than any box that man can formulate. No matter how much we try to manufacture to try to control our God to meet our agenda, God is not going to be controlled by man. He is Lord. The Bible teaches us that God was knowing the need. Jesus Christ, God himself, knew that he needed to get alone. Even before the storm came. To pray. To walk with his father. Before the journey was to begin... Jesus knew he needed that solitude and a walk with his father. This was not a one-off thing. This was not just simply an unusual thing, but this was rather a regular thing with Christ. There was often, often moments in which he would get up early in the morning, rising up a great while before day, the Bible says, to pray. 
The Bible teaches us that late at night, God himself, Jesus Christ, would get alone to pray and to walk with his Father. The Bible teaches that he would go into a mountain or go into mountains to pray. Sometimes with the disciples. Sometimes, many times, solitary. But he did exactly what the psalmist said, David, when he said, evening and morning and at noon will I pray. And cry aloud. And he shall hear my voice. We need to follow the example of our Savior. And have some solitary time with our God. Let me ask you. When's the last time you had some solitude? Those moments apart with no distractions. To pray. When's the last time you walked with God in those solitary moments? In those moments in which no one is watching and no one is observing? Those moments in which, yea, only you, it's only you and your heavenly Father and you are beseeching that throne of grace. One of those moments that we follow the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and before the storm even enters into the picture, we are finding ourselves and we are seeing ourselves on those moments in which we are begging the throne of grace and walking with our Heavenly Father. We need those moments. If Jesus Christ, God Himself, needed those moments here on this earth, we desperately need them. We are not going to be able to go through the storm like God wants us to go through the storm if we do not have that time of walking with the Lord. We are not going to be what we need to be. We are not going to be all that God desires us to be if we do not have those moments in which we are walking uh, walking with our wonderful and heavenly Father. If we are going to navigate our lives, if we are going to allow God to navigate and direct us, we must have some time with Him in prayer. Some solitude in prayer, gaining clarity and perspective. Jesus set that example. Look at verse number 16, please. When even was come, was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark. And Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by, uh, arose by, uh, by reason of a great wind that blew. Jesus here is praying. And as Jesus is praying, the disciples are entering the Sea of Galilee on a ship, on a boat. Not a large boat, but just a boat, the Bible calls it. And as they enter the boat, the Bible teaches us that on the Sea of Galilee, a great wind began to blow. You see, the Sea of Galilee is several hundred feet below sea level. It is surrounded by tall mountains, and there are very steep mountains on the east and on the west of those mountains, or excuse me, of that sea, and on the north and the south, there's some sloping texture to it, but still large mountains surround the sea. And as the wind blows off of the Mediterranean Sea and whips its way through the valleys and over the mountains and such, it can really sweep into that sea. And in just a few moments, that sea can come from a tranquil peace to a terrifying storm. It can happen without notice. It can happen in just a moment. 
But these are the disciples that are finding themselves in a storm that Jesus sent them into. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of the Gospels encompass this story. We're going to look at two stories, and I'll refer to another as well, but as we compare Scripture with Scripture, I want you to see the truth here. As the disciples get into the boat and begin their trip across the Sea of Galilee. Go to Matthew chapter 14. Hold your place there in John chapter 6. We're going to come right back to it in just a moment. But look at Matthew chapter 14, please, quickly. In Matthew chapter 14, verse number 22, we find the same story. Jesus and the disciples. Jesus, apart from the disciples, in just a moment. Look at verse number 22, please. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a a ship and to go before him onto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Jesus is about to go into the mountain to pray, as we saw in John chapter 6. And so he tells the disciples, the Bible says he constrained the disciples. (coughs) Excuse me. That word constrained there literally means commanded. Jesus commanded the disciples to get into a ship and to sail across the Sea of Galilee. Let's think about this for just a moment. Jesus is God. He is all-knowing. Jesus knew full well that that storm was coming. And he commanded the disciples To go into the storm. This was not an accident. This was designed on purpose. Jesus commanded the disciples to get into a ship. And to go across the sea of Galilee. Knowing full well what was going to take place. And he sent the multitudes away. And went to pray. When storms come in our life. Our first instinct is often, how do I get out of this? What, do I do to de- what did I do to deserve this? Why am I here? Why is this happening to me? All of those thoughts run into it because it's truly our human nature that feeds off of the fear of the unknown. And since we don't know what's going to happen in the storm, it's our natural flesh that asks and ponders these questions as we think about the storm. But very rarely is it when we enter the storm that the thought is given, oh, God has set me into a storm. But that is the reality. God has sent us or sends us into the storms of life. He commands just like he commands the disciples. But wait a minute. When we think about this, it changes our whole perspective about the storm. 
It changes the whole concept of what a storm is. If I fully trust, if I fully believe my God, who is Lord, who is King, if I fully trust Him and He is truly my, uh, 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 my Father that I can trust no matter what He does, it changes the whole concept of what a storm is because it, the storm is no longer something I'm clinging on through, but rather a shaping of what God is doing. It becomes something that gives purpose, hope, it gives strength, it gives promise, and it even brings an assignment. What do you mean by assignment? In other words, there is instructions that God has for me through this storm. And this is an assignment that God has for me. And God wants me to be built and to be shaped and to be molded through this storm. Not a truly a victim of the storm, but rather something in which God molds and makes through a storm. How incredible of a God we have that is willing to command us into a storm. And truly he does. Someone has said, God speaks to us through the regularity in which he interrupts our plans. I like that statement. You see, our disruptions, the storms in which we see in life, is really God breaking into our time. Our reality to accomplish what only he could orchestrate in our lives. We have an incredible God who is Lord of the storm. He is Lord. In Matthew chapter 14, look at, please, verse number 24. The Bible says, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Picture this with you, please. It's evening. It's late. The disciples are tired. They've been serving all day. They get into a boat and it becomes dark. There's no electricity on this ship. There's no running lights. The wind is blowing. The houses that may be surrounding or nearby the Sea of Galilee to try to get some glimpse of light are shuttering their windows and blocking their curtains. It is dark, pitch dark. The wind is blowing. And the disciples are rowing for all they can. In complete darkness. Tossed with the waves every direction they can envision. And these experienced fishermen, some of these men were literally almost born on the, on the water. It was their career. Think of Peter, James, and John, and others. And these even experienced fishermen were fearful for their own lives. This was a tumultuous, tumultuous time. Look at verse number 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. I want you to notice, first of all, when that was. The Bible says the fourth watch of the night. You see, there's four watches of the night. There was the first watch, which was from 6 to 9 p.m. There was the second watch, which was from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. And then the third, from 12 to 3 a.m. And then the fourth, with 3 to 6 a.m. This is the fourth watch. This is somewhere between 3 to 6 a.m. As we look at the time frame, probably close to about 4 o'clock in the morning. 
The disciples, the Bible says it was in the middle of the uh, middle of the evening. So probably about seven, eight o'clock in the evening is when these uh, uh, men got on this boat and they have been on the water all night for eight hours. Rowing frantically, not knowing what direction they are going. Can you imagine rowing for eight hours in a storm? I don't know if you've ever been on any of those rowing machines or exercises, but after about 25, 30 minutes, done, <laughs> ready to be done, amen? Even with my incredible muscles, you know? <laughs> I would flex my muscles for you, but if I would, I'd blow my suka right off my body, so I just can't do that for you tonight. <laughs> Some other time, maybe. But these were seasoned men who were used to things like this. And rowing all night. Can you imagine how exhausted these men were? Tired. Fearful. Notice how far they went in eight hours. Go back to John chapter 6. Hold your place there in Matthew 14. We're going to flip right back to it. John chapter 6. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 19. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, in eight hours they rowed or they sailed for twenty-five to thirty furlongs. A furlong is about 220 yards or about an eighth of a mile. You could do the math, but in about eight hours, that means they have rowed only about 3.75, almost four miles in eight hours. If you walk slowly, you can walk about three miles in one hour. Here, these men have been rowing for eight hours and are going nowhere. Half a mile, literally an hour. Four miles, about four miles in eight hours. They've gone half a mile an hour. They are rowing and trying hard and going nowhere. And they are fearful and perplexed about this whole situation. I'm sure their minds were recalling about the commandment of Jesus saying, Now get into the boat and I'll meet you. We see in verse number 19, they see Jesus Walking on the sea. I love this. This is God has a sense of humor. Uh, it's just it's amazing how he puts things in here. The Bible says walking on the sea. That walking is not like a fast walk, but it actually means to stroll. It actually has the picture of us strolling down the Potomac, uh, the uh, Potomac, uh, Potomac, sorry, I don't know what it is, whatever you say here in Mary, West Virginia, uh, the river, amen, the creek, and uh, <laughs> by Harper's Ferry, you know, you're just, you're just strolling down, enjoying maybe a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon stroll, and you're just walking, just beholding the, the sights around you. This is what Jesus is doing on this stormy water. Just strolling. He's in no hurry. Just walking, strolling around. I can envision Jesus seeing a lightning strike and looking almost as if he's admiring 
his handiwork and the artistry in which he is decorating the sky with. That's the kind of context in which this word rocking means. Just admiring his own perfection. And here comes Jesus. The disciples, tired, rowing for their lives, not getting anywhere. And suddenly see Jesus Christ strolling. I love this. You see, as the disciples are in the midst of the storm, Jesus entered that storm. Jesus was with them in that storm. Jesus was there. In his own time and in his own perfecting place. He was there. He doesn't just send us into the storms. He goes with us in the storm. Hallelujah. But notice the disciples. Notice what they do. The Bible teaches us in two of the three accounts, Matthew and Mark, that as they see Jesus walking on the sea, they, in their tired and delirious state of mind, thought he was a ghost. There were no ghostbusters then. They didn't didn't have anybody to call. (laughs) Sorry, that was bad. But I thought it was pretty good. Um, (laughs) they, They thought he was a ghost. The Bible says that. They, in their tired minds, thought, oh no, an angel of death is coming. And if things couldn't get any worse, we've been rowing all night, we've gotten nowhere. And now here comes a demon after us. What else could go wrong? And then their fear escalates. Their fear enters into another level in which the Bible teaches us that they become almost in a panic fear. Their fear is in such a way in which they are just struggling to even keep themselves together at this point. They are almost beside themselves with panic and terror. And then, I love what Jesus does. Look at verse number 20. But he, Jesus, saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Look at Matthew chapter 14. I want you to see the full picture of this. This is such like our incredible Lord. The Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 14, look at verse number 27. But Jesus, or straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Can I put it in our vernacular today? Cheer up, guys, I'm here. Can you imagine being one of the disciples and hearing Jesus say that to you? It was almost in such a way that if we were to say that to maybe a dear friend who is entering into a storm, we might be judged or misspoken of that we are trivializing or minimalizing the storm in which you're going through. Almost mocking. But this is what our God says to his disciples, his followers, in the midst of the storm. 
Cheer up, guys. I'm here. He is instructing them to have cheer in the midst of a fearful situation. You see, we truly don't need to be afraid of the storm. Because when we look at our Savior and he says, it's me, it truly puts a whole different perspective upon the storm. Because God's perspective is that he is the author and the finisher of that storm, and the storm is subject to him. And so when we hear that wonderful voice, it's me, we can do and we can decide in the midst of a storm to do exactly what Jesus told the disciples to cheer up. Our God says, I, because I am all sufficient and Lord of all, he says, you can have cheer, not because of what's in of yourself, but because of who he is and who he can control. He is God and we can have cheer in that storm. But it's the decision, is it not? The disciples had a choice. They could choose to fear or they could choose to cheer up. It's a choice. It's a decision. All of us in the midst of a storm has an opportunity to choose to fear or to cheer. What is going to be our decision? Naturally, our heart and our mind and our flesh, <coughs> excuse me, want to simply row harder. We want to tell Jesus, hey, get in the boat and help row harder with us. Jesus, you need to come on my side and see things my way. And even though it might seem insensitive to say cheer up, this is exactly what God is wanting us to do. To choose to trust him and to cheer in the storm. You see, Jesus changes the scales when he arrives. You see, storms are seasonal. They're not continual. Storms come and go. And he is Lord of that storm. But then something happens in this story that I find very, very humorous. I said there's three accounts of this story in four of the Gospels. Luke does not write about this story. Matthew and Mark do. John writes about it. (laughs) But he leaves an aspect out of it that is just... Hilarious to me. John and Peter were very competitive disciples. When you look at John's, uh, the gospel in which uh, God wrote through John, John writes about Peter getting to the tomb, but then he mentions that he is the one that outran Jesus, or or outran uh, Peter to get to that tomb. Peter is given a very poor light in the Gospel of John about his denial and the fact that he uh, uh, literally abandoned what God had taught him and went back to his fishing career. He does everything throughout he can to portray a negative light about Peter. These are two type A type personalities pounding against one another. And they are very, very competitive. When Peter looks, uh, is told that he is going to die a martyr's death by Jesus Christ in John 21, if you will remember, he looks at 
John, Peter looks at John and says, well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? (laughs) These two are just at odds with one another. Just competitive type A personalities that are just ramming against one another over and over and over again. And here in our story, something positive happens about Peter. And what does John do? He redacts that. (laughs) He's like, Peter did something that was good. I'm going to redact that. I'm not mentioning that in my story here. (laughs) But we pick it up in Matthew chapter 14. And we'll find out who, what happens, not because of John, but because of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 14, look at verse number 28. And Peter answered him, Jesus, and said, Lord... If it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. I admire here Peter's irrational courage. That's what it is. Tell me to come on the water and I can come on the water. Have you ever seen anybody walking on water? (laughs) No. Not without some movie-making magic. magic. (laughs) It, it, It doesn't work. But here in real life, Jesus was walking on water, strolling. And Peter says, I want to be with you. Peter was willing to let go of a boat that was the only thing that he was clinging to. And willing to let go of it all to go to be with Jesus. How many times are we in the midst of that storm? Clinging on to all that we think we have. And God is saying, if you let go, I can show you something greater. Because you'll be with me. There is something about being with Christ in the middle of the storm that nothing else can take the place of. No matter what we hold on to. This radical courage, this radical abandon that Peter had honestly challenges me. It is something in which truly encourages me to let go and just embrace what God is doing because God is the one who lives and he is the one that isn't just simply happening in the storm. Jesus is at the helm of the storm. The storm is completely under his control. You see, Jesus is not fixing an accident. He is orchestrating an event. That is what Jesus Christ does with the storm. He sees the internal significance and the eternal impact of the storm. And he says, I am the one who is willing to orchestrate this storm to have that eternal impact upon your soul, upon your heart, upon your life. And when Jesus enters the picture, notice what happens. Go to John 6, 21 and we're done. Then they willingly received him into the ship. And immediately, immediately, the the ship was at the land whither they went. Jesus shows up right at that right moment. And suddenly, the storm has lost its impact. Suddenly. Everything is okay. Jesus in the storm. Jesus 
is with us every step of the way. We can embrace the storm. We can cheer in the storm. And we can see Jesus as Lord of the storm. Because he is. The storm of your life is no accident. God is working. And he's using the storm in ways that you may never see full on this side of eternity. But if you allow God to help change your perspective about the storm, it will make a difference. May I speak for just 30 seconds about something in which we truly as in our generation are seeing some troubling things happening around us. There's a lot taking place. A lot of things that biblically we don't agree with. A lot of things that biblically trouble us. Cause us some concern. Wonder. But let me just simply say, Jesus is in control. Amen. He knows what's happening. Nothing has taken place that has taken God by surprise. He is the orchestrator of it all. He has used kings over and over and over again to fulfill his purpose and his plan. He used a wicked man named James who happened to be king of England with a selfish, prideful, arrogant, lordship type of mentality to give us Amen. our scripture in English. Amen. Amen. God can use anyone for anything. He's in control. Amen. And God warns us in Isaiah to avoid confederacies. That word confederacy actually means conspiracies. We're good at that sometimes, are we not? And Isaiah warns us of those things. Not to fall prey to those things and allow those things to twist and to manipulate our minds and take us in aspects in which God doesn't want us to go. He teaches us to keep our focus upon Him because He is the one who is Lord of the storm. No matter what takes place in the years to come, in the days to come, I don't believe we have much time left. I believe Jesus is coming very, very soon. But if he chooses to delay, and we see things in which maybe we would not have thought we would see in our generations take place, we can be confident that Jesus is that Lord. And he is the one that commands into the storm. Because he is orchestrating an event in us to shape us like he desires us to be. I don't know what's happening in your life. I know there are some of you that are facing some storms. Some of you may have been out of a storm for a season and you're thankful for it. A storm is coming though. I don't know when, but it will come. May I, may I encourage you to take just these musings that God has been teaching me 
to change your thinking, your perspective upon the storm. Because suddenly, the storm has purpose, and it cannot be disregarded. May I encourage you to keep your eyes upon Jesus. Father, I thank you for how you teach. God, I'm thankful tonight that you can guide and direct our hearts. God, I don't know what you have taught hearts tonight, but I believe you have. And God, I pray that you would have your perfect will. May your people change perspective of the storm tonight. In Jesus' name. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Would you stand with me? The piano is playing in just a moment as soon as the piano plays, or as before even the piano plays. Would you leave your seat and would you do what the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to your heart about? Maybe you need to pray and ask God to help with the perspective of the storm. Maybe you need to come and ask God to help you see Him in that storm. What a wonderful God we have.